Scott. Tell us where you went. Tell us where you served. You know, you don't have to. I did army. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And today we're really excited. We have uh, Dr. Andrew Fisher with us and paramedic Pete D'Antuono. Uh, we're going to talk about military medicine, which is something that uh, I don't know anything about. So I'm uh, for this episode, uh, we're going to hear some conversations. I'm going to sit back a little bit and uh, learn stuff. So uh, Dr. Fisher, let's hear some of your background for the people that didn't hear the, uh, the first episode. Welcome back to the show. And then, uh, Pete, let's hear some of your background after Dr. Fisher, and we'll get into it. Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, always a pleasure to uh, talk with y'all. Uh, I'm uh, currently a surgery resident at uh, the University of Mexico in Albuquerque. Uh, I was previously a PA uh, in the Army, um, served in the Army Special Operations Command. Uh, and then um, for that, I was a paramedic. For that, I was an infantry guy. So uh, long path to get to become a doctor, but... Um, you know, it's the way it's worked out for me. Pete, give us a little bit of your background before we move forward. Uh, I'm Pete Dexuano. I was a uh, uh, combat medic in the 1st Battalion, 503rd, 3rd Infantry. Uh, served in Afghanistan. After that, I uh, bounced around with a couple of BLS jobs. I worked at the Medical Research Institute for Chemical Defense, which is a, uh, an Army chemical research facility. Um, did some time at Rutgers. And then uh, my current job, I'm a firefighter paramedic. I work as a mobile intensive care paramedic for uh, Freebie Hospital in New Jersey. So let's, so guys, we've got a lot of expertise here. I mean, you know, everybody uh, has heard Doc Fisher uh, in the past on the last episode he was on. Uh, there's no doubt there. And Pete, uh, you're bringing um, also your expertise into this. Um, there is a lot of misconceptions in military medicine. And as we get into it, there's going to be, uh, I think there's even more now as you see it. Um, there's also a lot of people who are, I like to call like kind of shake and bake experts. Like uh, they take a TECC class or a TCCC class and all of a sudden um, they think they uh, have this uh, ability to, you know, be that person. Um Let's talk about some of the misconceptions that are out there about military medicine uh, in the civilian world and what you'd like to kind of set straight before we move on. Well, which one? Which well, <laughs> Any of them, Doc, go for it. Oh, I don't know. Let me see. Where, where would I start? Well, let's talk um, about the idea that it's all trauma. I, I think we I think civilian medics get a lot of uh, misconception. They look at a, a military medic or, you know, a, a unit medic like Pete was or even a, a re, you know, a, a regimental PA or on the medical staff that you were and say, well, you all you guys do is trauma. You guys don't do, you know, general care. You guys don't do cardiac or things like that. And I think I think, I think it's like it's more that, like you guys don't do real medicine is is what tends to come out. I, I think it it's the the attitude among a lot of civilians and especially a lot of, you know, EMS workers on the civilian side is, you know, we see like, oh, well, you know, I've seen really good traumas or I've taken TCCC. So I, I understand how trauma care works. Thus, I understand how military medicine works. And th like, that's obviously not the case, but we're looking for some clarification on that. So if you were someone who's a civilian and you wanted to go into be a, a military medic or you have background as a medic on the civilian side, what would be different or, and beyond trauma, what else do military medics do aside from, you know, patch, patch holes and <laughs> run blood? 
most of what the military medic does is primary care with a, obviously a focus on sports medicine and, and men's health uh, for the most part, uh, com- considering the current composition of the U.S. military. Uh, that being said, you know, you, you do kind of have to understand a little bit more about, about medicine beyond that. And, uh, you know, there are a, a plenty of ways to educate yourself on it. But, but a lot of what the medic does is that primary care, uh, even if it's not necessarily, you know, you're, you're not managing, you know, these fragile diabetics uh, with, you know, heart failure. Um, there's still a lot of uh, interesting medicine and uh, complicated medicine, as I think is associated uh, with, with it. And, and I totally agree. I think that, that um, one thing that military medics kind of grasp a lot more than civilian medics is that we really do serve at the will of the surgeon. We serve at the will of our, of our, of our medical director. And I think it's because of the close relationship we have in a battalion level. Um, one thing that I found military medics had down pat as opposed to civilian medics is our review of systems. Uh, it's not really something that civilian medics really get into. Civilian medics, basically, it's a rapid assessment of emergency, what's wrong. It's not, a whole, it's not like a holistic approach to care uh, that you would more see in the, uh, the military side. And the scope of practice um, from medic to medic, obviously, it never got crazy that I saw, but it was, um, it definitely varied depending on the surgeon, whether it was a profit surgeon, whether the battalion even had a surgeon, if it was a PA. Um, and unfortunately, there was no steady um, method for documenting a medic's competencies that I saw. I mean, you had the table eights, but you didn't have a true record of what they were trained in and what a, a, a surgeon or PA had entrusted them with. So I saw a lot of um, medics who were extremely competent at skills that I thought were far reaching beyond what a medic should be. And I saw medics that were, they, they maintained that basic job school knowledge. So it, it varies. So more, you're talking about more of a delegated practice kind of system um, where it basically, if your medical director or your, your command thinks you're capable of doing that, that's kind of what you did. And that's really what I saw in the infantry. Um, medics don't belong organically to the line companies. They belong to the headquarters and headquarters company, which they uh, generally has a medical platoon within it and the medics are sent down there. They're, they're then, you know, disseminated to the line companies for use as a, either a, a company medic, which would assist, you know, company command staff or a platoon medic, which would accompany platoons into the field. Yeah. Every unit has a medical director, whether it be from the brigade level or from the battalion level. And, uh, they do, um, provide that scope. There is certainly a standard scope of practice that the army medic has and is out there. But it sometimes can change, and the unit depend on you know how 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 they choose to train the medics. You know, okay. if, um, sometimes you, you you get people that yeah, we're gonna obviously a lot of lot like a lot of combat medics or corpsmen or whatever they do like suturing and stuff. That's pretty standard stuff. But it sometimes takes a little bit to get to that point. You know, no one shows up just knowing how to do it. Usually you have to do that whole uh, see one, do one, teach one sort of concept of training pathway, kind of a crawl walk run, uh, similar thing to where you kind of have a step up progression of being able to do things. But uh, yeah, I mean, you have to some level provide some sort of delegated practice for people whenever you're separated from your from the unit and you're just taking care of your you know, your platoon or your company without a, uh, a licensed medical provider. 
if that makes sense. So no, that uh, actually, that actually makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I think what people don't realize about the military as opposed to civilian is that I think there's a lot of fluidity there. Like if you have somebody who is going to be a platoon medic for a unit, that's going to be far away at a forward operating base or something like that, or, or even beyond that, like in an observation post or whatever. And if I'm using the wrong terminology, just beat me. Um, but something where you're going to be remote and you're going to be the medical care, you're going to have to have a different skill set than maybe somebody who's located on a base stateside. Um, you all have the same basic skills, but you know, that ability to close a laceration or irrigate something or, you know, lance an abscess or something that we would think as, you know, again, that primary care, that's an important thing to have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, it's a lot of training, constant training uh, that goes on in the military. It's, it's not like you kind of set it and forget it for a lot of things. A lot of times it's just, you know, you show up to set call and you're there to learn every day. Uh, you know, you're getting grilled on whatever it is and trying to pick up new skills, trying to, you know, trying to maintain what you have. And again, it's, it's often not necessarily super, uh, you know, uh, sick patients, like I said, those real diabetics or you know, heart failure, or these patients that require significant attention by, you know, an internist, you know, these are for the most part healthy people, but they do hurt themselves. They do get diseases. They um, require attention beyond simply, you know, you, you know, take a vitamin and, you know, go about your merry little way, you know, and, and more beyond the, the idea that, you know, people are like, here's your ibuprofen and change your socks and go away sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> Much more beyond that, uh, that, that is offered. Um, it's unfortunately not probably, uh, it's not it's the same across every single unit. Uh, there are some bad providers out there, some bad medics out there, some bad patients out there and vice versa across the board. Uh, so there are sometimes bad things happen to good people. Um, um, and often not necessarily done out of, uh, malice or, uh, overall negligence. Uh, but there are some, bad actors out there for sure. Yeah. And I, I think that matches up with the civilian world. I think, you know, we all have our rock stars and our groupies, so to speak. And, um, you know, we all know most of the time, I think, you know, the difference. Um, so let, let's talk about this idea that anyone can do it. Cause I, I tend to think that that's not true. Um, just the physical um, capabilities of what a platoon level medic or somebody at your level doc would have to uh, be able to do physically is a lot different than a civilian medic. I mean, I know in New Jersey, you know, we, we kind of complain when we, you know, we have medics who complain when they have to lift a patient or use a stair chair and uh, you know um, it's kind of funny. The standard requirement that you have to be able to lift 35 pounds. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of clownish, but um, talk talk about that because I don't think I think everybody thinks that this can be done very easily, and it's not. It's a hard job. Um, so what what was exactly the pipeline, and and what is you know how long does it take to train? What are the physical requirements, and you know what do you get at the other end of that pipeline? I think uh, there's a misconception, and that's kind of uh, point that you know military medics especially, you know, in, in the infantry are, you know, they can do massive box jumps, run a marathon, you know, fight a, you know, great white shark. 
Um, I think it was Terminal Lance. He said that the biggest guys are often the biggest, you know, folks. And <laughs> unfortunately, um, when you when you think of a series of a military person, especially when you like get closer to what an infantryman and those individuals look like, you think of a big, burly, beefy guy, uh, not too intelligent, you know, punching things in the face. And in my in my experience, it couldn't be further from the truth. Some of the uh, gentlemen I met on any infantry, some of the people I served with, uh, very intelligent people. One guy's a marine biologist now, guys are going on to medical school. Um, people who have served in the infantry with uh, bachelor's degrees that I personally met. And a lot of these people were, were thin, were scrawny, some of them were heavy set. The traditional yoked, you know, movie guy in that element, you know, there were a few of them. They were usually the scout him, but uh, they did, you know, they did exist to less of an extent than we're traditionally like stereotyped to believe. Um, I think that the key determining factor, whether you were going to succeed or not in that kind of environment was motivation. Um, a lot more mental than physical. If you wanted to be there, you would do whatever it took to be there. And if you wanted to accomplish a mission, succeed, you know, make it work, you could do that. Uh, I noticed that endurance was a lot more than a lot more of a factor than brute strength or like explosive power. So while they did come into play, I think endurance was the key. And with the best cardiovascular or mental endurance. So the, the debate. So that, that mental toughness angle is something we've talked about a lot on the show and it, we, we've discussed, you know, different intangibles with patient care and like that. Um, I'm interested in both of your thoughts on how to, I guess, maintain a mental toughness throughout working in the military, seeing the things that people see and, and treating those people. Are there any, I, I hate to say, you know, magic spells kind of thing that where you can just figure out how to be tough through this or is that, or is there training offered to that end or is that just kind of something you have to figure out as you go? Hey, the, the, the medic service is a morale officer. And resilience is, in this case, often cultural. Um, if a unit is toxic, if a unit... Toxic is a, it's a, it's a very broad sweeping term. Uh, if a unit is not conducive to a member expressing what's on their mind and, you know, really healing in that, you know, non-tactical, in that, you know, rest and repose, kind of like hang out, talk about what's bothering you environment. Um, if a unit is so tough and, you know, unwilling to talk about their feelings, uh, people kind of bottle all up. And I think that's not really conducive to forming that mental toughness. It's guys bottle up until they snap. It's, it's a fake mental toughness. And it's one of the things that plagues civilian medicine as well, um, where people try to act the part of the tough guy instead of, you know, relying on the people around them. It's cultural. A small percentage of the U.S. military actually sees combat and and actually is exposed to significant events. Uh, most of the military uh, is in a supporting role, which is nothing wrong with that. It's, everyone has has a part to play in it. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that uh, the, you know, not everyone has, has the same experience when they go to war. And uh, I think you see a lot of people who are in these uh, maneuver units or in these units that uh, do the fighting, uh, I think overall they probably have just a better uh, understanding of resilience uh, and uh, are able to maybe uh, better um, 
parse it up in their head to where it becomes makes sense to them and it doesn't necessarily uh, impact them uh, in a negative manner per se. Uh, but that may also have to do with the culture of the unit, uh, as Peter mentioned, uh, and you know other factors that just draw these people towards that sort of unit. Yeah, I, I, I think culture matters. And, you know, Dr. Fisher, you uh, served in the 75th Ranger Regiment, um, one of the more storied, I would say, regiments in the United States military, uh, an extremely high impact, uh, kinetic kind of unit. Um, and, you know, in the last episode, we talked a lot about that unit and what the the belief system was and, and how you guys trained. Uh, to the point where you had a unit that was basically going out every night during 20 years of warfare and um, able to have some amazing survival rates. Um, and and that was what I learned from that talk was that it was ingrained into your culture. Uh, the idea that everybody had to know life-saving skills, everybody had the ability to apply them at the point of injury, Um that everybody knew their stuff um, was a very important uh, part of that culture. Would you, am I on target or not really? I think that, I think that makes sense. Uh, I think there are a lot of, a lot of great units out there that do some tremendous things that learn how to foster the right sort of uh, environment. Do you think that military medicine has, are they more of a, they look at it as a service or is it life-saving? I don't know. I think about military medicine as it's a job. Okay. It's something that I enjoy doing. Uh, and I'd like to continue participating in that. Uh, and I, and I think that's important for across even EMS and, you know, do a job because you maybe enjoy it, but also because it pays bills. Uh, and it's not something that, you know, you can't live without. And I think that's often some issues that people encounter after the military and EMS is like, oh, I was born for this. Mm, no, this is just a job. And you need, to, you need to kind of take that to heart. And then it makes it a lot easier to be able to move on to things whenever you uh, see new openings uh, appear for before, you know, in, in life, you know, you seek out things. But again, it's just it's just a job. This is what I enjoy doing. And uh, after this, I'm going to go find something else that I enjoy doing. That's I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think yeah, I, that's I think probably that's, what we don't do in civilian med- EMS. Yeah, that's a really interesting take. And I, 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 I agree with you. I tend to think that in not even just EMS, I think police, fire, EMS, we tend to more make our job our identity. And I think that's very difficult to shake for a lot of people. And especially if you're you know, if you're a, an average or below average provider and your identity is being a provider, I think that can that can hurt a lot of people. Um, you know, just kind of if you don't really know what you're doing um, and you're not doing a good job at it, I think that's that's detrimental to a lot of people, um, both the providers and the patients. I'm I'm interested in the idea of everyone has a role, everyone knows their role. Is there? Do you guys think that there is a way to take that sort of ethos and bring it to the civilian side, where you know your job is this and this is how you'll how you'll do it? Because we know that you know certainly around around our area, but in EMS in general, we have people who their skills maybe aren't where they need to be, their training maybe isn't where they need to be. Is there any sort of key that we can pick up from military training to sort of make our you know, cultural 
presentation and our cultural care better or to improve the training of you know our EMTs and medics? I, I don't know if there is because I think there it's there's such a I, what I believe is, is a pretty stark contrast between the two. Uh, I, I think we often uh, may find ourselves on the wrong path if we start. It's almost militarization, right? So we get the militarization of you know police, EMS, fire. It almost seems like it's maybe the wrong thing to do because you know whenever you know the military goes someplace, they go to war. Their job is to defeat the enemy uh, and you know try to save the lives of you know you know our fellow members. <laughs> Uh, but that's not civilian EMS fire or police. Um, that's, that's not their job. And I think taking those sort of, some of those uh, values may be applicable, right? So, you know, good leadership, mentorship, uh, you know, create environments where people, you know, feel free to be able to express themselves and, and, uh, but loyal, you know, loyalty and such are all important things that I think can be transferred over. Um, but I think the I, trying to identify a way to mirror what happens in military isn't necessarily the best. That's fair. Pete, what do you think? I'm going to have to have you uh, repeat the question. I apologize. I, my, my question just generally is, is there anything that we can pick up from the military to try and, I guess, improve the culture or improve general care among civilian EMS? And whether that's the leadership structure, the training structure, or anything like that, um, it, just because it, it feels like what you guys are describing is a consistency of, of training and knowledge across the board, even though if different units might have different goals or different training, but it seems like they're all you know, trained very well. And it, it occurs to me that civilian EMS oftentimes isn't in that situation for whatever reason. So my, my what I'm curious about is if there's anything we can take from the military model to apply to the civilian model to improve, whether it's responses or, you know, training patient outcomes, things like that. And I'm just interested in what your thoughts on it are. And I just want to say that all of the major stuff that I learned in the military that I thought civilian EMS prevented from has already been kind of like transposed by uh, TCCC, which is something that Katsi, Dr. Fisher, and the people he works with uh, basically developed these programs to take the, the, the best practice of military medicine and make them easily digestible in a 16-hour uh, class for civilian and, you know, people who aren't actually out there on the lines of a war because there's, you know, wars aren't something that we can just you know, come across. Um, so the best practices developed during the wars we had, you know, got condensed to a conversational, conversationally portable class um, that is now, you know, widespread. Everyone I know has attended TCCC or TECC. Um, but I think that we need to kind of take from military medicine because, as you know, I'm kind of like, I, I kind of view myself as someone who's, trying to, uh, I, wanna, I don't want to say fix because it's not as wide, as, as wide sweeping, but like assist EMS morale the way it needs to go. Um, I think what we learned in the military, well, what I learned in the military was that motivation and morale was kind of uh, intrinsic and then uh, extrinsic factors, extra, extrinsic uh, motivation is fleeting. You know, you can be forced from uh, a management or a sergeant or somebody to do something or to do things a certain way 
to learn a specific assessment, to learn a uh, flow sheet. But if you don't internalize why that's important, uh, you're going to lose it. And there's no better case for this than the military, where depending on, you know, whoever your senior leadership is, you will have to learn something, you know, every single week, you'll have to memorize a new flow sheet. I was confronted by a sergeant major when I was in first of the 503rd. I was, I think I was sweeping the wrong hallway or I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And uh, he basically, you know, metaphorically pulled me by the ear and said, had me walk with him. And he asked me what my five principles of trolling were. And honestly, I couldn't remember. I had no idea. He was offended because he sent out some kind of like message that said, you had to learn your five principles of trolling. Put me up with my platoon sergeant. And I'll tell you for the rest of my life, planning, recon, security, control, common sense. It's <laughs> sometimes it works, but for the most part, you know, if you don't have that intrinsic motivation, you know, yeah, that that sort of a uh, that that tough love approach doesn't always translate well to civilian life. No, but but I think I think they're I think they're onto something here that there there's something that can be picked up um, from the civilian side if you're listening to this is these guys want to be good because they want to be good or they want to do it because they want to help their their soldiers they want to help their sailor their marines they want to do it. And it's for the um, it's for the right reasons. And, they want to do the right thing for the right reasons, correct. which I think is, and if you're, is it, very important. And if you're doing it just like in the civilian world, if you're doing this because you like the pizza parties and the hero signs and the thank you for your service stuff, you you might have to rethink things. You you have to do this because you want to do it. Um, you have to do be good at it because you want to be good at it, and that means putting in the work. But it's that's an intrinsic motivator. It's not an extrinsic motivator. I'm not. I'm not reading stuff. I'm not reading papers. I'm not listening to podcasts because I want other people to say, "Oh, wow, look how great you are." No, I want to do it because I want to be knowledgeable because I want to know stuff and I don't want to let my patience down. So that's that's the lesson I think. I think the one thing that that I do think there are probably a number of things that are beneficial you know, from the DOD perspective. But I will say, I think one thing that is often done, as I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, that I didn't really uh, mention before was the fact that we're, there's always this training going on. So you're always being taught. Um, I think EMS often gets caught in a situation to where it's like, okay, you passed, here you go. You're good for the next, you know, year or whatever. I mean, it's every day, you know, I'm asking my, medics something uh it was back when i was still on active duty but you know it was, it was it's a daily thing to where non-stop to where i have the responsibility to to teach uh and help these medics grow and they have the responsibility obviously to continue learning and, and trying to uh pick up as much as they can that's a good point learning for the sake of being good and being able to apply the knowledge when it's necessary so that you can't flub it um, I think in I think in the civilian world we've lost track of that where our education is just a ticket punch uh, to get a card to get the hours so that we can recertify, and a lot of people don't look at education as a way to make themselves the strongest clinician they can be. It's just something I got to do. Yeah. It's, it's arbitrary, you know. It's box checking at some point. Yeah, I think that's the way a lot of EMS is because it's all, all about. Uh, you know, what's, we got to go continue education, um, and which is a drawback. I think the military is they don't track hours like, you know, EMS does, 
but it would be impossible to to catch every single hour because again, it's just it's just I think part of the culture of military medicine is to always teach, always train, and always be ready uh, because we don't outside of going to war. You know, obviously we talked about a lot about being primary care and providing you know everyday care to our guys. Uh, you know, it's the whole mindset most of the time. It feels like is training for war. We gotta go to war, and I gotta sharpen those skills. Well, and yeah, and you, you'd want your your troops and your you know your staff to be ready at the drop of a hat, literally at, at most times. Um, but let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about how military practices affect the civilian world, right? So, when we're talking about how research is conducted from the military side, what are there certain advantages to the infrastructure of the military that allow for research to be done as compared to the civilian side? No. Okay, so I, I I feel like that that might be that might be a a misconception that a lot of civilians have. So we we talked about this a little bit off air, Doctor Fisher, but I'm interested in uh, your thoughts on what I guess people consider um, the standards for military medicine. We talked about you know there I think there's a a thought that once you join the military, you've conscripted yourself and your body belongs to the military, so they can do whatever they want to you. And, I'm, no, I'm and, and we all know that that's that's not true. You know, there right. everyone has to go through a standard. Uh, uh, if you, if I want to do any sort of research, there's a standardized approach, just like civilian, the civilian world. It's exactly the same. There's a uh, you know institutional review board. Uh, you have to write protocols. You get submitted. You got to get approved, uh, and you know it goes from there. Uh, anything that is done in the military has some sort of either research to support that it's being used, or uh, if it is research, has gone through a process to deem it safe. Uh, and there will be some sort of outcome that may benefit people. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the idea that you can just, people just do things to me. I think they either uh, have a bit paranoid slash romanticized their, their military career. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think um, you know a lot of people have that misconception that the, the military medicine uh, can get things done because they cut corners, and that's nothing could be further from the truth here. Um, and the fact that they've made these gains or they've found made these discoveries, maybe it's more of a testament to that intrinsic motivator of wanting to be good at something, to wanting to do the right thing for the people they take care of. Um, what do you think of that? I think that, you know, there are plenty of research organizations within the DOD uh, that people, you know, can put their efforts into. But I do think there are a lot of very smart people. As Peter had mentioned very early in this pro, uh, in this podcast that, you know, he served with people with bachelor's degrees and have all sorts of other things going along with them. So there's uh, uh, some sometimes unique motivators, but some uh, very big brain, big thinkers in, in the military that also kind of bring things to the table that you may not necessarily recognize immediately, but, you know, once they kind of step up, it's like, boom, what can we do with this? Uh, so I do think there's uh, additional culture of like trying to always improve and become better and how, how to, what can we do to do that? Uh, and uh, coupled with the fact that yes, yeah, certainly the DOD has, I think has a large budget to be able to uh, fund a lot of these projects. Uh, if you look at a lot of, I mean, look at uh, some of the studies that happen in the civilian world, how many of them are DOD funded? Uh, to try to improve, you know, uh, 
you know, trauma care or whatever uh, spectrum of healthcare it is at that point. So seriously, I mean, look at the DOD funding for the research that happens out there. If you if you read some of these papers, you're going to see that a lot of it is is from the DOD. Yeah, and and for a lot of people out there, um, I'm sure there's a couple people like if you're wondering if Andrew Fisher knows research. Seriously, please just go bang your head against the wall. I mean, <laughs> don't be these he's, guys. He's got a whole church of evidence based. <laughs> don't be don't be that. <laughs> Listen, can you not? Can you guys just not be the guys on Facebook that like call out the guy who wrote the paper on something about the things that they do that he doesn't know what he's talking about? Can we can we just stop that? I, I'm just going to go on a rant. I mean, it's, it's consistent. consistent. <laughs> People fail to recognize. That's I, all right. <laughs> I've, I've 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 messaged him like. Is this guy for real? Who is this guy? <laughs> you have to think they're putting on a bit, right? They're doing a bit. It's got to be. It's got to be a troll. Yeah. That's that's kind of become a meme since, I mean, anecdotally, at least, you know, since COVID happened, where it's like, oh, no, that paper, like, where, what's your data? And you're like, well, I, I wrote the paper. So <laughs> that's, that, that's my, <laughs> that's, that's my background. So, yeah, don't just, just do a Google search before you stick your foot in your mouth. Um, one of the things I, that I, I think I, I would say that bad things have happened to people uh, in research uh, prior to, you know, 1970s. Yeah. About uh, uh, prior. Yeah. Some bad things happened and it wasn't necessarily the DOD per se. It happened across the board uh, for, uh, from the U.S. government to civilian uh, to you know, around the world. So uh, bad things have happened, uh, but there is a very, uh, I believe, rigid process, at least for the past 30 years for uh, research in the U.S. military. Now, let's, let me just talk about one other thing that, that's, that I think is, you know, you're, you're an example of, um, you know, you started as an infantryman, you, you get out of the army, you go be a paramedic, you come back in, you, you go back into being a medic, you become a PA, you go to medical school. Now you're a second year surgical resident. Talk about the mobility that, that the military does provide for people who have that intrinsic motivation um, and how you can really kind of move yourself up if you're willing to put the work in. I think, well, one, if you don't do that, the military will do whatever they want with you. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, just that the military has a job to do. And you either are very aware of your career and do what needs to be done to ensure that not only is the military's needs being met, but also your needs are being met. Uh, so, yeah, if you if you are one who is proactive and uh, in their career, then you can do a lot of things, um, especially as I think is enlisted. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities for, I think, the combat medic that aren't often realized, uh, but they're out there. You just got to kind of search and find it. Uh, there's even you know programs that'll send uh, enlisted dues to finish up their prerequisite for medical school and get them sent to medical school. Or you can do any number of programs in the, in the military. So uh, sky is really the limit, I think, especially, I think, from an enlisted standpoint. Uh, from the officer standpoint, I think you're a little more confined to where you would, you know, your area of, uh, of concentration. So, yeah, whatever you want to do, you can probably do it. There is one thing that I wanted to bring up with you guys before we, uh, we start getting into the, this last topic here. Um, 
as far as transitioning from the military to civilian life, there's not really any kind of program that can move you from being a military medic to a civilian medic. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that program not existing and if you're aware of any traction on that or what kind of system could be put in place to move from being a military medic to a civilian medic. I think whenever you look, so if you look on like some of these social media groups and the stuff that's said about, you know, well, basically, uh, you know, combat medic is a paramedic. I'm like, no, they're not at all. Not even close. Uh, and, I, and I think that anyone who's actually transitioned from being a military medic and becoming a paramedic uh, can see that. Uh, I don't think the education is near the same. I think there are EMT, there are EMTs uh, and that have some skills that have a skill set. Uh, there's a lot to be said for the uh, additional knowledge that needs to be gained before they become a paramedic. Uh, should they have the opportunity to intern a paramedic school? Absolutely. Uh, um, but, but I don't think there should be this, hey, I was a combat medic, so I should be a paramedic now. That was sort of, that was sort of your experience. Did you find that there was kind of, I guess, more information in the transition from the military to the civilian side? Or what, what was that process like for you? Walking from combat medic to paramedic, I found that a lot of what I had done had not been properly documented because there was no system in place for documentation. But I found that by attending an entire two-year paramedic program as required by the state of New Jersey, um, a lot of gaps were filled. I think that um, despite having a medical director, a PA, a battalion surgeon who, you know, imposes a lot of uh, a lot of his knowledge on us. Um, electrocardiography, you know, advanced level skills. I feel like there are, there are a lot of gaps. And I feel like until military medics have their, doc, have their, uh, their education and their, their experience uh, documented in some kind of portable way, um, you're going to continue to see these gaps. And unfortunately, until the DOD really standardizes how they're going to document the scope of practice of a military medic, um, you're going to have to have military medics go through the entire pipeline. I mean, I, I'm not as involved in paramedic education and, you know, um, continuing education as the, the three of you, but I would say that, you know, potentially in the future, if these were documented, maybe you could have a, a test out process for military medics to say, okay, I've completed this skill because a military medic could be fantastic at uh, venous access and forego the 50 IV starts that needs to be documented to become a New Jersey mobile care paramedic. So uh, do, you, right now, do you think something so, like a like a bridge program is is feasible on at least like like something for registry because you can't do it state to state, right? Yeah, sure. So it, do you think that that kind of program is something that could be built and could be worked on, or is that something that it's it's going to be like the the juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze for that? Uh, in, in in my experience, no. Um, I I think I think that there's too much of a gap, and I think that any kind of bridging of that gap is too patchwork. I don't, I don't think there's any standardized, you know, bridging of the gap from what you're talking about. Like, so, so the Air Force runs a EMT to paramedic program. They teach basically the entire curriculum in like four to six months. It's, it's some short amount of time, but these individuals are the best and brightest. And they really, do, they, they put their nose to the grindstone 24-7 for the duration of the course. Um, I think that would be the only exception to the rule. I, I, I 
feel like it's, it's too patchwork to really take any standard 68 whiskey or uh, Navy Corman and say, you know, take an advanced standing approach to prayer medicine. And, and just so we're clear, because I'm, I'm a civilian, 68 whiskey is army sure. medic. Uh, yes, sir. Okay. You don't have to, you don't have to call me, sir. That's fine. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any, I don't have any stripes on my sleeve. <laughs> Dr. Fisher, do you think that that tracks? Do you think that's about right? Or do you think there's another way we could approach it? I, don't, I, I think I'm a little bit more pessimistic about it. Uh, I, I, I just more, more pessimistic than Peter. That is more, more pessimistic. <laughs> I just don't see. I, I, I think they, man, they may be great for like primary care office or something like that. Uh, but to put them in a role of being a paramedic and say a 911 service, uh, I, I just don't see that as being something that's sustainable across the board. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of individuals out there who would excel and do fantastic. Uh, but it's just how do you pick and choose who gets that? And then is that actually does that would that actually ever work where you can just kind of pick and choose who would be able to, you know, progress uh, through that manner? Right. Well, and I'm sure that the process is difficult, too. You know, it's like, OK, well, I know that Steve is a good medic in the military, but you know, Dave isn't or whatever. Um, maybe Ed, maybe the, the answer here is just that we need to give, and maybe this is where DOD can come into this is giving incentives to paramedic programs to recruit and bring these people in and train them up to fill in right. those gaps. And now you've got an intrinsically motivated um, person who could really be a class leader and set the tone for a class or a cohort of young kids who don't really have a lot of guidance and are kind of thrown into the deep end of the swimming pool. Right. Um, it would probably be a real benefit to most classes to have somebody in there who wants to be there, who wants to get good, who has that kind of attitude. And it, that gets infectious. If you have somebody in a class like that, that that's a motivator. That's somebody that'll get get your group, uh, you know, that can that can definitely do some good things for you. Maybe that's what we need to be looking for as instructors and as class administrators is looking for these people, maybe liaisoning with your your local bases or your you know local units and finding people who are getting ready to come out and saying, hey, you know, you've been in combat medic. How'd you like to be a paramedic? How'd you like to go and do this? Um, you know, they're motivated, you know, they're willing to learn, you know, they're willing to put the work in. Maybe that's what we need to do. Well, and also if they're about to get out of the military, they're going to need a job too. So that's, I mean, I feel like that would be a good time to well, get Well, Ed, that. I've got a job. Boy, do you. I have a job for you. <laughs> <laughs> While we're on that's, it, do you know- that's, That was good, Pete, with the finger guns. Like, hey, hey yeah, gotcha. you know that if you're a paramedic and you have some background, you can go and make a lot of money. Huh? Huh? Well, but I, I know that there are learn been, you can travel to a foreign country, travel to a faraway land, see the world, <laughs> see the world. My uh, I, there was a radio host I used to listen to who joined the Navy and was stationed in New Jersey, and she's from New Jersey. It was like, come on, see the world. And then they put her just right, right where she's like 20 miles away from where she lived. There's actually um, an old Saturday Night Live skit on that after Top Gun came out. It was Port of Call Bayonne, New Jersey. Nice. <laughs> and it was guys, guys cleaning toilets and emptying cans of tomatoes into a pot. And it was, it was bananas. You know, typical, typical Bayonne stuff. Yeah. 
Um, but I, I know that the, the, a program like that has been pitched at least as long as I've been a medic, um, just encountering people that were in the military and then came out into civilian life. So I'm always interested to hear what people's thoughts are on it, because wow. I, I find that no two people have the same thought, which I, is always very interesting to me. It's it's always that, you know, if you're leaving combat medic and you're becoming, you know, a, a civilian medic, it, it, the answer always seems to be like, well, you know, there could be a patchwork plan. It might not work. It could work. We have to put them through a whole national registry program. What if the states had a simple, you know, it, so there, there's, it seems like a, a problem that has 75 different answers and none of them are the right one. But they had one. They had a working answer that nobody talks about. And I, Dr. Fisher, I know we touched on this briefly. You're, you're the subject matter expert. I, I apologize. I, I just have to bring it up. In 1965, Duke University, with the Bachelor's of Science and Medicine, the PA program, they stood it up for returning military medics from the Vietnam War. Uh, the first class position assistants were combat experienced Navy corpsmen. Um, and I feel like, you know, I, I, obviously, we're talking 1965. We're talking pre-emergency. We're talking pre-bringing out the bed. We're talking a, a, an era of emergency medicine that is totally or the white paper. I, I pre-white paper even white paper. Yeah. What 1968? So we're talking an era of emergency medicine that was leaps and bounds, you know, ahead of what we have now. And I, you know. But, but they made it work. They took military experienced medics and they had a way to transition them into a, uh, a primary care setting as assistant to a physician, you know, a physician that, well, I mean, that's, and obviously the PA role, the mid-level role has evolved beyond that. Now it's become a master's and they've become uh, largely independent in, in a large part of the country. But um, it, it was a way to, it's what I touched on at the beginning of the podcast. You know, we serve at the will of the physician we are a direct extension of somebody's medical license. And it took that attitude and that approach to medicine. And uh, I guess for the time, 1965, uh, transition it to the civilian side. And I feel like it's, it's just been lost and there's no easy translation anymore. And I think a lot of it, I mean, it could be due to litigation culture or the advanced you know, scope of practice that we see civilian EMS provider. Well, I mean, it, it can also come down to, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in things coming down to being, you know, a matter of will. And it might be that it's, you know, if there's too much infrastructure, it's going to take too many people to do too many things to make that change too, you know? I disagree that there's a way, there's a way forward as soon as you get out. Uh, it, often people don't want to do the hard thing. They want something easy. Right. Uh, you can, if you want to become a paramedic, then you should go to paramedic school it's it's, it's not challenging and you know that's something created like you know like the pa being created that's one thing it created a, a new field uh you know what are we looking to do you know we're just looking for a combat medics have a way to become a paramedic i i, I think that's we have a path for that go to pa paramedic. and that's 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 fair i that i think that's a fair assessment of it yeah you know i and it, it, that might be you know the holistic answer where it's like, yeah, if you want to be a medic, just it might, go, the go on and be a medic. Answer, the simplest answer might just be the best answer, Ed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, go to medic school. You have skills, man. You got some great skills. Just think how much easier, how that's going to help you as you go through this process. I mean, being a PA going to medical school, I had a certain understanding of certain processes. So I didn't necessarily, I didn't get a break when I wanted to go to become a physician. I had to go to medical school. Uh, there was no, Hey, you can become a doctor. Uh, 
by taking this route. I mean, if you look at the, the one program out there that offers a, a quote unquote fast track for uh, to become a physician from PAs, it's a, in a LECOM and it's a three-year program, um, but they often kind of cram your uh, schedule a bit um, to where uh, you may not have as much free time as the regular traditional path, but um, you know, you know the, the classic trope of medical students having a lot of free time. Right. <laughs> so, some people have, some people can appreciate it more than others, I guess. <laughs> there's, Wasn't there, there's no path around the path. That's basically what you're saying. Yeah. And, and like I said, it, yeah. it might be that the only way, the only way through is through. Yeah. You know, so with, uh, this is something that we've, we've asked a lot of our guests, um, because you know, the world's on fire. Um, I'm, I'm, we're, we're interested in, in both your opinions on this because now that with everything that's going on uh, in Ukraine, there's been a big, inc- a big increase in demand for, you know, medics and EMTs and whatever. And there's a bunch of independent projects that are advertising high salaries to go for the privilege of working as a medic in Kiev. Um, there's always been projects that are civilian military type things that are, you know, all around the country, independent contracting, things like that, um, that are all around the world, I should say. So with everything that's going on with those offers that are going out, because Danny and I know that a bunch of our colleagues are considering this option. uh, What are your thoughts on uh, taking a three month contract to go work as a medic in Ukraine for six figures? It depends, you know, I, you know, full disclosure, you know, I sit on board of directors for global response management and we have people that, uh, um, we have, you know, some stuff set up now and are looking to kind of expand a little bit, uh, you know, where, where the majority of stuff that is probably going to happen, you know, which is probably outside of Ukraine, uh, so these, you know, these opportunities to go work for certain volunteer organizations, maybe they get paid or maybe they don't, whatever. Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I think for the most part, it's probably pretty safe for most places, but I think people looking to strap on, you know, whatever gear they can find and they're going to go play quote unquote, you know, a combat self deploy, <laughs> you know, the, I, I think it's quite, it's a, I think it's a little bit ridiculous. Honestly, I, I think a lot of people don't have no idea what they're getting themselves into. And I find that, uh, especially as, you know, we, we first started, this first started happening just over a month ago, a lot of stuff ramping up and I'm like, slow down. We are a week. We are 10 days into this. We don't know exactly what is going to happen or occur and look at it now. Even now I'm still thinking still pretty early and anyone who wants to jump on that bandwagon of, you know, whatever they want to go do uh because you know they they had they own some gear and they took a ttc course and they're going to go over there and they're going to make a difference uh i think it's a bit silly what do you think i think it's a recurring theme i i totally agree with dr fisher um the the individual with gear who took a ttc course a lot of the individuals that I see that are, uh, I mean, a lot of people have reached out to, to me or, you know, someone who isn't me um, to uh, get some advice regarding going to Ukraine. And the, the first two things I would ask somebody who was contemplating going to, uh, you know, a war in a country that they're not familiar with is, do you speak the language? And what's your medical experience? And generally the answers are no. 
And the second the answer to the second question is EMT or some other form of, of basic life support. And we all know that, you know, BOS becomes, comes before ALS. BOS is the most critical life-saving skills. But in a war zone, as we discussed throughout this podcast, there's a primary care aspect that takes up 90% of your job, as Dr. Fisher said. It's, 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 it's not all tourniquets and combat gloves. Um, you could go to a country like Ukraine not speaking the language, not carrying any significant amount of equipment because you couldn't get through customs, not carrying a firearm, just bringing BOS knowledge to the country. And the effect you'll have is, is, is doubtful unless you're really good at filling sandbags. I, I, I haven't been over there and I can't really speak for the people over there. I just don't, I don't understand what we're trying to accomplish here. We're we trying to flood a country with, you know, uniforms because I, I, I don't, I don't really know. I don't, what's the end goal? So, so if I've, if I've worked primarily as a transport EMT and I only sure. speak English, you're saying it's a bad idea bad. That, I, that I go uh, practice bad. in another bad. country. That's bad. Bad. I just want to make sure. Bad. What I'm saying or about, about to be Dr. Bowder, but what, hey, 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 I, I, what, what I'm saying is if you, if you show up in Ukraine as a transport EMT in America, that means you automatically outrank all the Ukrainian civilians. That means they will give you a hospital. They'll make you the hospital administrator, and then you'll have to manage the budget, and you just don't want that responsibility. you got to stay back, bro. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a long con. I, I'm not, I'm not interested in all that time for it. <laughs> You automatically I think, I think, if, I think if you're really interested in going and helping uh, re- refugees, go with a big organization. I mean, again, I'm clearly unbiased, and I have you know disclosures to make as a you know on the board of directors for one of those organizations. But we look for qualified people all the time to go and and help with uh, uh, you know care in some of these places. Uh, it may not be you may not be carrying a gun and wearing your quad nods, but you know what if you it's impacting you know, uh, lives and outcomes. Well, and, and also I think, you know, of course, whenever there's something like, like this happening, I think, you know, the, the refugee crisis always kind of gets pushed to the wayside and forgotten about. And certainly those are the people that probably need care more than anybody else. Um, but we are coming up on a hard out. Danny, do you have anything else? No, I, I, I think this has been uh, very illuminating and, uh, you know, I, I want to thank both of you for coming on. I think it's been uh, great. Um, I, I definitely, you know, I learn something every time I talk to you guys. So I have a great time talking with you and I hope you come back. It was super informative. So happy to talk to you guys. It's always a privilege to talk to you, Dr. Fisher and Pete. I guess you're okay too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. Same sentence. Ain't right, Ed. Ain't right. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you if you can't have a podcast to rib your friends a little bit on it, that's that's, that's the whole point. That's why that's why we're here. But I want to again thank you guys so much for coming on and talking to us. I I learned a lot here too. Um, like I said, my my military knowledge is I'm I'm aware that there is a military. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's so, Doctor Fisher, where where can they find you? If uh, can you talk about the Church of Evidence Based Medicine a little. You bit? want to talk about talk about myself again? Yeah, I, sure. I, I, actually, I guess it's more of a. Uh, Totten Scooby runs it most part. Uh, so um, yeah, the St. Fisher Church of Evidence-Based Medicine on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook everywhere. Uh, and Instagram is uh, Trauma Daddy. Uh, <laughs> and Twitter is Fisher81. 
So no, I appreciate you guys. Let me come on. Uh, you know, it's a lot of, it's just conjecture and, and just me just kind of sitting up here, letting you guys, you guys let me chat and say things that probably aren't true, but, um, you know, it, it's nice to be able to kind of, uh, just kind of go back and forth a little bit, kind of hear some differences. Uh, and, and I would be disappointed if, uh, Peter agreed with me on everything. So, uh, I hope we can have some, some sort of disagreement to kind of help move forward altogether. Great. Hey, maybe next time we get the whole church on. Yeah. Totally. Do you have anything to plug? Uh, no. Uh, social media is a devil. Thomas Essen was a witch. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thank you both for uh, for joining us. All the no- everything we have is going to be in the show notes, including Dr. Fisher's previous episode. Uh, we'll link to everything and uh, any other papers that we found and discussed. Thanks again to everybody for uh, for listening, and thanks to Dr. Fisher and for Pete D'Antuono for joining us. For the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks. Get home safe, guys.